we, we are on chapter 15, and chapter 15 is hearing God's voice extra nos. Uh, it begins with a quotation from Romans 10 and 17. This is Jeffrey Meyer's book. In the last lecture, I accidentally called it uh, The Lord's Supper. It's called The Lord's Service. Uh, but before we begin this particular chapter, it's helpful for me to remind the, us all that uh, everything that I know about theology is what I've read. And so I'll start with a little story. When I was, before I married my, my wife, I almost said my current wife, <laughs> as if I had more than one. <laughs> before I married my wife, I was dating this one girl, and in our particular community, you had to meet parents. And so I was meeting with her father, and she's, he's asking me about theological questions. And he asks uh, about different doctrines I believe and different things I've studied. And his response was, well, it sounds like you just repeat everything you read. Um, and he meant it as like a, a criticism. I took it as a compliment at the time. That look at this guy, he can read Calvin and spit it back to him. But at the, at the time, he went a little bit further and he said, don't you have any other thoughts about the Bible on your own? Uh, there's this idea, even in this Presbyterian church that I was a part of, that part of what we're supposed to study is how we feel about a scripture and come up with our own opinions. And so he goes on to say, I feel like when I read Calvin, I think like Calvin, and my opinions are Calvin. Or if I read too much uh, Rush Dooney, I end up thinking too much like Rush Dooney, etc., etc. And that was somehow a negative thing. I've come to the conclusion, and I think it agrees with the scripture, that that's really how all learning works. A servant is not above his master, is what our Lord says. And so when we hear how we learn doctrine, how we learn about God, how we follow God, it only comes from hearing, reading, studying. So it, ultimately, everything we study is the words of some other person. Uh, and that's not a negative thing. What we should understand here is that the heresy that flips this around is mentioned all throughout this chapter. It's called Gnosticism. And early on in the church, rather than listening to the written word, the tradition of the Jews of following the Torah, or the written word, repeating the words of Jesus, or the written word, the apostles' teachings, the early critics of the apostles who tried to create their own church tried to move away from the normal physical means of the church. They were called the Gnostics. And they believed that they had a secret knowledge that can be received by uh, their own interpretation. So this is because most people, most people in American evangelicalism trace their roots of their theology back to an individualism and a, and a false view of spirituality. So, you can hear it in some of the pithy saints evangelicals say today, it's not a religion, it's a relationship, or I don't need a mediator with God, uh, those type of ways of thinking, I don't need a church. Um, I remember when I was in uh, youth group in high school, I used to say, a car uh, being in a garage doesn't make it a good car, just like a Christian being inside of a church doesn't make him a good Christian. And there was this emphasis on individual knowledge outside of the physical means of the church. And so this chapter uh, is all about how God uses normal means. And the particular idea that Mr. Myers is trying to get is that God uses the church, God uses the sacraments, God uses his spoken word, physical things and real relationships as the primary, immediate, main, and most important ways he communicates his truth. Uh, and this is, of course, a biblical model. In the Old Testament, the way that God communicated his truth, his faith, was through his word, and he established in his history 
the tribes, the families, or organized into normal people on calendars with meals. And it follows the same pattern in the New Testament. There's not this idea that some people have that Jesus has come to make everything spiritual. Uh, some people take the words of St. John that uh, you have worshipped in spirit and truth to mean somehow you no longer worship with church and sacraments. So we'll start here at the beginning of uh, chapter 15. We're going to skip uh, a little bit of his uh, discourses with Emily uh, Dickinson. And we have here this first thing. He says, I saw a placard on a church last year that asked passerbys looking for Jesus. The answer was provided below in bold letters. You will find him in your heart. And uh, this is, of course, the basic idea of most individual Christianity. If you want Jesus, you need to ask him into your heart. You as an individual have a personal relationship with Jesus, and your final destination is the most important thing, getting your heart right and spending eternity with Jesus, you and him. And this problem of American Christianity is not the ancient form of Christianity. I think a lot of it is born out of reaction to probably some of the the stale or wooden views of the Roman Catholic Church, that we're trying to avoid, avoid fixed forms of worship, of sacerdotalism, as we talked about last week. We're trying to avoid the idea of putting too much faith in the institutional church or the papacy. And so we go to the opposite extreme of the individual and personal feelings. The other problem is, over the last century and a half, experiential theology through Pentecostalism, uh, through word of faith movement, through speaking and, and charismatic gifts has displaced the central role that the Reformation had for the church. Now if I were to begin and say Calvin believed the most important way for the Christian to become a Christian is through the church, you might be surprised. If I said Luther says the most important way for a Christian to become a Christian is through the church, you might think that is odd because they were rebelling against the Roman Catholic Church. But, in this chapter, you'll see quote after quote that puts the emphasis on ordinary means of grace. And so that's again another way that we struggle. We think that what is real is what is spiritual, emotional, or even authentically ecstatic. We want to come to church, we want to feel the music, we want to have a true worshipful experience that draws our hands in the air or our knees to the ground, and that way we know that it's real. And if I'm told, when I come to church, now it's time to raise your hands, now it's time to stand up, now it's time to recite this prayer, that that means I don't really mean it. That's the opposite of how the Bible itself works. In Romans 10 and 17, when St. Paul says faith comes by hearing, He's supporting and presenting to the New Testament an idea that Jesus' main way of communicating the Christian faith is through normal human faculties. So if I have a quote here from Luther, he says, uh, <clears throat> this is here a couple paragraphs down from what we said, it says, Some have held that God ought to deal with the individual and confer the Holy Spirit upon him as a means of special light and secret revelation in the heart. See, that's how most Christians begin their relationship, that God has opened my heart individually. He has caused, as maybe Wesleyans would think of, a warming of my bosom. Uh, the clouds have opened up, and there is suddenly the voice of God. I've, I've magically been healed, and God has revealed to me. God spoke to me. He put a burden on my heart. This is how people like to speak of their religious experience, as though that makes it real. But Luther says that the printed word 
and scripture word are important. The printed word, the spoken word of the scripture is how God speaks. Luther says, therefore, we should know that God has ordained that no one is to come to a knowledge of Christ without external and general means. What Luther is saying is you can't be saved without the church. Um, and this is following an ancient idea. St. Cyprian said it. You can't have God as your father without the church as your mother. Uh, and Calvin flips that quote around in his institutes and says, if you have God as your father, the church must be your mother. But this is the idea. Uh, Cyprian also says it in another way, that there is no salvation outside the church. That's a, a text our uh, Roman Catholic friends like to point out. But they draw the boundaries of the churches wherever the authority of the Roman Pope is. But what this is saying is that where the church is, where the church is, we have here, 101 North Monte Los Altos, and the word is spoken, the scripture is read, the sacraments are offered, that this is the ordinary and normal way in which people receive the gospel. And that we should expect that this way works, whereas uh, these other ecstatic or experiential things are hit or miss. You have people who have these miraculous events and then fall into apostasy. There's no sure guarantee that what was done was truly authentic. Instead, they reflect an individualism of our culture rather than the standard of the Bible. Luther continues by saying, God has deposited this treasure in the spoken word of the ministry and does not intend to confer it privately or secretly in the heart. You can see how God works this out in how he organizes the church itself. Nobody goes about baptizing themselves. Right? The church is a collection of people. When you celebrate communion, you do it as a group of believers. So these means of grace are done as a community, meaning that in order for you to receive the grace of baptism, receive the grace of the Lord's Supper, it has to be done in the church. No other way to receive it but through there. If you believe that faith comes by hearing, it's by reading something or hearing something produced by somebody outside of you. Nobody has the King James Bible dropped from heaven into their lap. Right? They're taught, they receive. Uh, the Gnostic theology puts it the other direction. Now, uh, this idea is sometimes tried to be couched in a spiritual church. Right? We say, well, of course that's true, but we believe not in a physical church, an institutional church, we believe in a spiritual church, and anyone who believes is part of the body of Christ, and therefore you don't need the ordinary institutional church. Calvin, in his Institutes, Book 4, has an entire section labeled Quote, the necessity of the church. Now he says, <clears throat> because it is now our intention to discuss the visible church. So what's Calvin talking about? He's talking about the people who are there on Sunday morning, who have the brick and mortar building, who read the actual scripture, who have real voices, who come under the labor of the font, who receive the physical bread, who receive the physical wine, who are seeing the instruments and the material of the church. So, because it is now our intention to discuss the visible church, let us learn from this simple title, Mother, how useful, indeed, how necessary it is that we should know her. So this isn't some Catholic superstition to speak of the church as a mother. This is a central doctrine, we've heard from Luther, heard from Calvin, that the church is our mother. But how important is the mother? Calvin continues, he says, for there is no other Calvin says, the only way to salvation, the only way to help, there is no other way to enter into life unless this mother, so Calvin, again, 
says, there's no way to be a good Christian, to enter into the Christian life, there's no way to be a successful Christian without the mother who conceives us in her womb, gives us birth, nourishes us at her breast, and lastly, unless she keep us under her care and guidance until the putting off of mortal flesh, we shall become like the angels. Our weakness does not allow for us to be dismissed from her school until we have been pupils all our lives. Furthermore, away from her bosom, one cannot hope for any forgiveness of sins or any salvation. So at 26 years old, in the 16th century, John Calvin is writing this great dispute, disputation against the Roman Catholic Church. This French reformer is saying, the Roman Catholic Church has fallen away, the bishops are apostate, they've lost the true faith, let's return to Augustine, and what we need to do is to rebuild the church. And without the church, there is no hope of salvation. Notice that Calvin puts that there. They're not talking about an invisible church. An invisible church is not a place where you go and get nourished. It's not a place where you're comforted. It's not a place where you live. It's not a place where you study. The invisible church is a statement about the eternal state of the elect. He's talking about the visible church, where you go to study your Bible, hear the words preached, the community you belong to. And Calvin says, without your membership in this visible church, there is no, quote, hope for the forgiveness of sins or salvation. I don't know if anyone's ever read Calvin, but he's pretty precise, and he doesn't throw, away, throw around the word forgiveness of sins or salvation lightly. So he takes this doctrine of the church, and he says this is a central issue in the Reformation, and it's not one we can throw away. Again, Luther confirms the same idea by saying, therefore, he who could find Christ must first of all find the Bible. No, it doesn't say the Bible. Must first find uh, individual regeneration. It doesn't say that. He says, therefore, he who would find Christ must first find the church. So Luther, again, who is excommunicated by the Pope, who is on the run from the institutional church of Rome, who has nailed the theses, criticizing all of the practices. And the church at the time of Luther was much more corrupt than even the Roman Catholic Church is today. There's no sale of purgatory, there's no sale of indulgences, there's uh, no sale of Mary's breast milk today. Right? Catholic Church still has lots and lots of errors. But if Luther could, at his age, in their apostasy, still put faith in the idea of the church, where do we get the excuse to ignore it? Luther continues with, how would one know where Christ and his faith were if one did not know where his believers are? And he, who did, and he who would know something of Christ must not, must not trust himself or build his own bridges into heaven through his own reasoning. But he must go to the church, visit, and ask of the same. And then here, Luther, like Calvin, quotes Cyprian. For outside of the church is no truth, no Christ, no salvation. Now, Cyprian of Carthage is a, a great writer, but it also speaks to what the reformers believed themselves to be doing. The Lutherans did not want to create a Lutheran church. The Calvinists, the, the followers of John Calvin, did not want to create a new Presbyterian church. What they were hoping to do is reform the current church according to the standards of their fathers. And that's why, as you read through institutes, you'll see uh, everybody from Bernard of Clairvaux to St. Augustine to Cyprian, all of these guys quoted over and over again because their reformation was a calling them back to the faithfulness to the original church of the first 
you know, 10 centuries at least. Now, in his particular book, uh, he has <clears throat> some extra discussion here about the instrument of how the church works through physical means. And there are, of course, uh, three basic ways that he defines how the church works through instruments. I want to say that those are the preaching ministry, and the preaching ministry, as we've discussed, is the, re the reading of the word and the sermon. Right? So you can say the preaching ministry of the church also includes Bible study, or groups like this, catechesis, but the actual idea of taking the word of God, reading it to the people, and the Holy Spirit using that, or preaching the word of God, and at working on the people. That's an instrument of physical means, normal preaching. Uh, so for example, in the churches for the last 2,000 years, there have been a calendar, a lectionary. Read this scripture, listen to this scripture. Follows the apostles' teachings in Acts 2 and 42. Uh, but then also, the calling of the people to obey the scripture. Uh, the reformers were big on saying that when the preacher preaches, he speaks as Christ to the people. He's exercising what the apostles called the gift of prophecy. But there's a second way in which the offer of salvation, the ordinary means of grace are offered through an instrument of physicality, and that is the means of grace in the sacraments. Uh, you might want to call them the uh, mysteries. Uh, sacrament means the same thing, but some people also call them the ordinances. Uh, ordinances of what? And the idea is that the water does something when it baptizes, the bread does something when we eat it, the wine does something when we drink it. Uh, and that's something that's very uncomfortable with 21st century Christians. We want to say that, as our, as our Baptist friends like to say, that we put the water on as a symbol of what's already happened inside their brain. They believe in the, in the Bible, or they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Bible goes in the other direction. In 1 Peter 3 and 21, it says, be baptized, not that you might go to heaven, right? It says, uh, baptism now saves. And the order of that is important because it says that baptism itself is a mechanical or even an instrumental way in which the church works on the person. It really does wash away sin. It really does put them in union with God covenantally. The water is not just making us wet. The water introduces that person to God. So we don't like that, I think, modern Christians. We don't like that idea. The other one that we don't like because we're so afraid of transubstantiation in the Roman Catholic sense, we don't like the idea that the Lord's Supper does anything, that there's no power in the Lord's Supper. We might hear our Reformed brethren say, it's just a symbol, or it's just bread, or don't do anything special with it because it's just wine. But I've always noticed and think it's rather strange that the folks who think these ordinances have no power or no mechanical uh, majesty are the ones who guard them so particularly, right? You ever notice that uh, <laughs> Baptists believe that baptism does nothing, right? It doesn't wash away sins, it just is an outward symbol of an idea that you have now accepted Christ in your heart. But don't do it unless you really believe it, right? So <laughs> you have to guard it. Whereas uh, the Reformed folks, Anglicans, Presbyterians, and the Catholic folks, we have always baptized our children, baptized our children, welcomed them into the covenant, and believe it actually does something. That's true of the Reformation as well. But think about that also, how our Reformed friends have guarded the table, the Lord's Supper. We have so many denominations within the Reformed world who chastise their congregations every week at the Lord's Supper. And they say, examine your hearts and don't come unless you're truly worthy. 
Well, if you really examine your heart, you'll say you'll never be worthy to come to the Lord's table. But why? What's going to happen if you come unworthily? Now, there's scripture that says there's some who are sick and dying because they come to the table unworthily, but that's not what the Reformed people believe. They don't believe that this bread and wine are the body and blood of our Lord. They don't believe that they do anything. They don't believe that there's any uh, majesty or mechanical nature in them. Yet that's what the church fathers say. And that's, of course, what our Lord says. This is the source of life. He who eats of this bread shall have life eternal. Uh, he who does not eat of Jesus cannot enter into heaven. These are kind of ideas that we see in John chapter 6. But this is, of course, difficult for us as well. So there's the mechanical way, the natural way that God speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us through his sacraments. A third way, and this is probably one that's even more difficult than those first two, is that God speaks to us through our human relationships. So he speaks to us through the organization of our communities. Another way to say this is that we are saved by the reading of the word. We're saved by the word. That's one way we can be saved. Or we're saved by the sacraments. A little bit more difficult, but there's historical precedents, so Christians can sometimes get behind that. But what if I say, a child is saved by his father? Or you are saved by your neighbor? Uh, there's also a sense in which the church is a means of grace, and that the people in your life are the normal human voices of Christ for you. Now, the uh, book here talks about the idea of the Holy Spirit and his work, and he writes... <clears throat> As we have seen, by affirming God's use of created means, we are being very, very Calvinian, or Calvinist, has often departed from its master. To understand the Holy Spirit's promise to use the Lord's appointed means as instruments to deliver the gifts of the kingdom is the hallmark of sacramental ecclesiology. Some people think that Calvin's sacramentology, or his view of giving the Lord's Supper, was similar to men like Zwingli. But that's not what Calvin believed. Calvin's view could be summarized in a, a phrase, mystical presence. He believed that the Holy Spirit is very much involved in distributing grace through the bread and the wine. That it's not just bread and wine. Now, <clears throat> he also makes a point that what we see in the means of grace is not just these particular potential ideas, but sure promises. This is also one of the things we get backwards, is we hear the offer of salvation through the reading of God's word, or we hear the offer of salvation through the reading of the gospel. But that's not how the church has functioned. The church says these are promises, signs and seals of God's grace to you. So that if somebody takes their child and they put them in the font, they are receiving a real promise at baptism. And the same thing is true. When the word is preached faithfully, we're receiving a promise. So Myers asks the question, why don't we believe what God has promised? Why do we believe that it's ultimately up to us? Why do even as Calvinists do we somehow imagine that somehow there has to be a decision from here when we recognize in the other parts of our theology, soteriologically, that election demands the regeneration of God from outside of us? So how does he do that election from the outside of us? He uses these normal means of grace. He uses his word, he uses his sacraments, he uses his church to convert, regenerate his people through their promises. So why are we so offended to think that God actually delivers on his promise when water is poured on our head? Or when we eat 
bread and drink wine. Or when the word is preached through men in the service. Sometimes you'll hear excuses like this. Well, I was baptized and I fell away and then I really became to understand the gospel. So my baptism didn't save me. Well, that's not what God said. God's promise was that your baptism. So uh, we have to hear and believe that. He quotes one of his professors at Concordia. And so Concordia is the Lutheran seminary in St. Louis. And he says, quote, We modern people no longer find the Holy Spirit where he is to be sought. So if you were to tell somebody, how do you normally find God? Look into your heart. That's Pocahontas, right? <laughs> That's not the Bible. It's go to church, listen to the word preached, submit yourself to baptism, take communion, become part of the family. That's how we get saved. Now he continues with this quote, we no longer understand the promised bond of the Holy Spirit with the external means of grace and perhaps do not want to even hear it anymore. Now he goes on a long quote from Calvin on John chapter 20. And Calvin says, we now see the reason why Christ employs such magnificent terms to commend and adorn that ministry which bestows and enjoins of the apostles. It is that believers may be fully convinced that what they are here, what they hear concerning the forgiveness of sins is ratified and may not less highly value the reconciliation which is offered by the voice of men than if God himself has stretched out his hand from heaven. And the church daily receives the same most abundant benefit from this doctrine when it perceives that her pastors are divinely ordained to be sureties for eternal salvation, that it must not go to a distance to seek the forgiveness of sins which is committed to their trust. What Calvin says is that the reason why we have physical means of grace is because that's how God speaks. In the Old Testament, he created signs and symbols, the Passover meal, along with the calendar of the feast. So that when people said, am I really saved? Am I really part of the covenant? They can look at their circumcision. They can look at their Passover meal. They can look at their family and their genealogical line. They could hear the word promised. They could see the sacrifices at the temple. And all of the word that was spoken was confirmed by God's orchestration of external means. They could be convinced through the symbolism, but also the sure promises here that God really did it. And that continues in the New Testament. God gives pastors, sacraments, and the church so that we don't depend on the voice alone. Uh, the other way to describe this, and this is uh, my closing thought here, in the Anglican world we talk about the idea of confession. Uh, and uh, if you go back to the Reformation, the idea of penance used to be one of the sacramental rites of the Catholic Church. And you've probably seen, seen the scenes where people come into the confessional booth, they sit down, and the priest is on the other side of the screen, the man says, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been two days since my last confession. And the priest hears the sins and then says, ten Hail Marys, one Our Father, a bag of Cheetos, or whatever they require, right? <laughs> but this idea uh, of the confession, or auricular confession, existed, of course, in the early church as well. Except it was a lot more stringent. It was a lot more required than just going into a confessional booth. The people who had fallen away during the persecutions, for example, when Diocletian came and chased all the Christians out, and you recanted, or you ran away, or you hid, or you buried your crucifix, or you did the things to hide that you were a Christian, when the persecution ended, you didn't just get to come back to church. You had to come back to church, and you had to stand in front of the congregation, 
and say, I denied Christ. And the pastor, the presbyter of the church, would then say, you can't come to communion for a year now. You're under discipline. After that year, you'll prove that you're welcome to come back. Now, I'm not recommending we go back to that, but there was an idea that the church had the power to forgive sins and the power to order our ideas. And today, when we talk about confession, we say, uh, none must, some should, all may. None must, some should, all may. And the idea is that when we come on a Sunday morning and we read the confession, when we come together as a church, uh, we read the confession, we have a direct access to Christ. And when the priest speaks the absolution, he speaks in the person of Christ, we hear the vox Christi, the voice of Christ, and our sins are truly forgiven. And that's great if your sin was you know, being impatient with your children, if your sin was not making your tithe correct, if your sin was uh, you know, using the Lord's name in vain. You can understand and communicate that the Lord has forgiven. What about the people who are dealing with sins that are very difficult? Whose voice do they need to hear? And so personal confession, much like the liturgy of confession, sometimes helpful to the soul. So, none must have a personal confession with the priest, but some should. Someone who comes to church week in week and starts to doubt, Did, I confessed this last week, and I still am confessing it this week, and I'm still struggling with it next week, and maybe you need a personal intervention. The way that modern Christians have worked around this is they go and see a therapeutic counselor. Right? They go and put Xanax in their system to quell that inner voice that says, you've already confessed this sin, why are you confessing it again? Uh, not that there's anything particularly wrong with seeing a, a counselor, but the church has seen confession as another one of these ways where the priest, the pastor, the church can speak to an individual and on behalf of the church say, I've heard your sin and I can promise you and assure you your sin is truly forgiven. So some should come to see that. Uh, come, come to an experience that. And you'll notice that this type of pattern is true for all of the sacraments of the church. It's possible to get to heaven without ever feeling the water of the font. But if you do come under the water of baptism, you receive certain promises, there's a certain surety, there's a certain guarantee, there's a certain grace given to you, so you should do it. Um, that's true for how the God of this nature works through all things, rather than depending on some thunderbolt from above in the Gnostic theology.